Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris Fault, the editor of the Toolkit. My guest today is writer-director Dee Reese, whose new film, Mudbound, is hitting, it's hitting theaters and Netflix at the same time, right? Yeah, November 17th. November 17th, yeah. right. Right in the middle, and not by accident, in the middle of award season. You know, I think IndieWire readers have been, you know, Pariah was such a big movie that we loved, I mean, in our mm-hmm. world, mm-hmm. and, and been wanting, you know, always checking in and see what's going on. Mm-hmm. It seems like after Pariah, the big thing for you was writing. That was the thing that kept you kind of engaged mm-hmm. in the film world, both mm-hmm. both in from the industry perspective and as an artist, right? Yeah, yeah, and then Pariah like, led me like to like Bessie in a way. So basically, like for me, I wanted to be an auteur and kind of like be in charge of the stories I was telling. And so, like you know, so with Pariah, we got a I got a blind script deal with Focus, and so I wrote this like crime drama for them that they felt wasn't big enough. And so then you know, spent like you know two years like trying to get that finance and didn't happen. But you know, in the meantime, I had written like the spec script for um, not a spec script. It was like a it was like a pilot for a Violet Davis at HBO. They didn't go, and then I had written. Um, a lot of like spec things that didn't go. So for me, like writing was a way keep, of keeping going, and like it was the thing. Like you know, I was fortunate in that. You know, I never stopped working after Sundance 2011. You know, but I wasn't you know able to like make it a film again until Bessie for HBO with Michael Lombardo and Lynn Amato, and then this like in 2015. So like casting always came to me in 2015. Like then because of Bessie, casting came to me with this script. Um, the original script was written by Virgil Williams in 2015, and got a chance to like rewrite this and shoot this. So so yeah, so it's been like. A fast six years, like looking back, it feels like a long time. But I mean, when I was in it, time was kind of like flying by, you know. And is, were as you're writing, these are all projects that you're thinking about for yourself, or some of it just the the the, the business of writing for for Hollywood. No, I don't write for other people. Yeah, I, don't, so I, only, I only write stuff I'm going to direct. Yeah, yeah. So it's all stuff that I want to do, or stuff that's like speculative, and like had this TV, had a couple of TV shows, like original shows that I was trying to do. And so, you know, I'm still like pushing that ball along and have something like I'm excited about. But yeah, for me, that was why I got into filmmaking in the first place because I wanted to like write, and so I saw it as a way of like being able to immediately have this immediate kind of bringing something to life and telling stories versus like you know publishing. So that's kind of like what got me here. Yeah, my sense, and is that I mean, I mean, obviously generating your own material mm-hmm. and being creative mm-hmm. in that sense is mm-hmm. obviously great, but my sense is also, as you as a filmmaker, the writing process and the way you're thinking about structure and the story you mm-hmm. want to tell is, you know, some people think of uh, screenplay as a, as a blueprint. My sense is, is that there's a huge part of how you think about film and the way your mind works as a filmmaker in the writing process. Yeah, yeah, and so to give credit to, so Virgil Williams wrote the first draft of the mm-hmm. script, and so that's what I read, and that led me to go back and read the novel to, by Hilary Jordan to mm-hmm. see, like, what else was there? You know, and so I'm interested in kind of like the unexpected. I'm trying to find the angle that's like least least obvious in a way. And so for this film, I wanted to think more expansively about like you know what it means to not be able to go back home in that way thematically, similar to Pry, and that Alika is this person who has to like like to like leave home to kind of like be herself. You know, and and in this film, you have these two soldiers who can't come back home and fit in the family dynamics, can't fit into like the social hierarchy. Mm-hmm. This kind of there. And like, I, you know, the thing I thought was interesting, I wanted this to be a story about two families, so we had this dark symbiosis between the Jacksons like, and the McCallums. Like, one doesn't exist merely to serve the other, but they're both kind of mirroring each other and like locked together like in this muck. And so like, you have the two sons who 
both have this trauma, you know, and they're linked by that, and there's not really quite a name for that. And like you have these two husbands who both have this sense of disinheritance. Hap, who literally has ancestors in the ground, blood, bones, and sweat in the ground, but can't take title to the land, versus Henry, who's bought into this place, but ironically feels disinherited because Pappy has sold away the land he really wanted. And then like the two wives are both like disobedient, like their husbands are like, you know, kind of setting forth a path for the family and the women are always like taking like these like side routes and doing like what they think is really best. So I really wanted to get at that and explore whiteness as currency. So sometimes on material, like even if it's not necessarily the original thing, I take my own angle on it, you know, and like that's what gets me excited about like the different voices and that's what I wanted to bring to this film. And like I wrote a lot of original scenes that, you know, aren't in the book, weren't in the first script, like Ronzel leaving. Um, all of Hap's sermons, you know, Hap and Florence dancing, you know, Ron Zell and his mother in the candy bar, and just like, you know, the whole kind of idea of like, you know, I'm going to go work for them to help get us ahead because it's important that the Jacksons had agency mm. and they had a life and that they talked to each other about things other than white people, you know, so this really gives them that kind of fullness. And, you know, in the book, you know, the connection is like Lily May can sing, the little girl, and my version is like, no, she wants to be a stenographer, you know, mm. and it's not gonna be the sweet piano playing, singing thing. Right. But, um, and I got to bring my own personal history because my grandmother, you know, her parents picked cotton. She said she would never do that. She wanted to be a stenographer. And so I was able to kind of transpose kind of that idea, like onto these characters and onto this world. And, so I'm always where, where are your like, roots? Where are your family? Is your family? So I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, but okay. my maternal grandparents are from Louisiana, okay, and so my paternal you. grandparents are from Tennessee. So, yeah. um, you know, a lot has been made about the fact that you, you can just hear it in what you described the the way that you're seeing this interconnectedness of characters and the mm -hmm. two families, and mm -hmm. and that element of different subjectivities of letting this be at different moments, different characters, film, mm -hmm. um, which is structurally really interesting. But then there's also this element of the two characters, um, uh, Jason Mitchell's character and, and Garrett Hunlin, mm -hmm. who are kind of are, are part of that tapestry, maybe a little bit more supporting character, go go off to war, and I don't know. I think it was like around about an hour, mm -hmm. hour twenty minutes, something mm -hmm. like that. Come back, mm -hmm. and their presence back into this world that you've established mm -hmm. is not only this thing that's this catalyst for this plot, but in a way, it mm -hmm. becomes their movie, which is so unusual mm -hmm. that they almost become it becomes. Mm -hmm. There, that, there. That's, that's a really unique structure for a movie to work. It works in that, you know, that book, that kind of jumping between characters is something mm -hmm. we're used to. But, mm -hmm. you know, is that something you just always knew you wanted to do, or that you could that that, that sense that, that that would work? I mean, that yeah. Well, it was kind of it was there, like in the baseline material, like in Virgil's original script, it was kind of there. And for me, in the editing and like you know the the furthering of it, it just had to. I wanted to even though they're absent, I wanted to keep them present. So we intercut the battle, the tank battle scene with Hat breaking his leg and that whole sequence. So you get this like psychic connection where father and son are kind of linked in the struggle. And same thing with Jamie. He has this kind of B twenty five dog fight in the same moment when the girls have whooping cough. And so we intercut that. Mm -hmm. So when he's screaming, we don't know if he's going to die. We don't know if the girls are going to die. And we cut to they've made it. So in a way, it keeps them psychically linked. You know, and the Linked. So even their absences felt, you know, they don't just like walk out of our story and then walk back in. We get this idea that everybody's fighting on their own fronts and like we get this whole juxtaposition of the battle abroad versus the battle at home mm -hmm. and how like the battle at home is often the one that we lose or is the one that's bloodier. And so, you know, by keeping the guys present, by linking Ronzel to Hap and by linking Jamie, you know, to Lar and the girls we kind of set up a sense of what's going to happen like when they come back. Then we understand why Hap 
literally clings to him, you know, when he comes mm -hmm. back. Like, Ronzel becomes his kind of, like, um, his win. Like, Ronzel's victory becomes his, you know, and he's empowered for the future. And when Jamie comes back, like, Lara jumps on him. Like, Lara, Jamie becomes her escape, you know, mm -hmm. and she, she, you know, needs him. Like, basically, you know, if not for Jamie coming back home, Lara might have walked out and left Henry. But then Jamie then becomes a reason to stay. So just by, by, by keeping their stories alive and linking them thematically, not just like in terms of plot, I think is what makes them felt. And when they come back, it's like, of course this is happening. It all has to feel kind of inevitable. And so... Are there filmmakers? Because this is something that I, I was trying to think of. Obviously, there's lots of uh, directors who, mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of do these multiple character stories. Mm -hmm. but in terms of what you're describing here, and it, it's clear it... It, it, it fits in your head, so therefore mm -hmm. it's going to fit in the movie. But mm -hmm. I, I can't think. Is there people that you look to that are kind of doing some, doing something different with narrative in this sense that are kind of that are a model for this, or is this really just just the way D. Reese sees movies and saw, or saw Mudbound? Um, in terms of film references, no, we didn't look at other like multi-voice films. You know, even mm -hmm. one point Rachel was like, like, when has this ever worked? And I'm like, I don't know, but this will be the <laughs> film where it works. You know, like there's not really an example. Mm -hmm. You know, for but you know, like in literature, there's examples. There's like Isabel Wilkerson who does like Warmth with Her Sons, sure. where oh, I think literature, yeah, yeah, these people who don't even know each other who are going on the same journey. Mm -hmm. So and that was another thing. Like I had written in between, like I'd written this like script for effects. You know, mm -hmm. this pot pilot where. I was keeping these multiple journeys alive, so like that was like almost like good prep for being able to like to like do this, because mm -hmm. those people like never intersect, you know. But how mm -hmm. do you keep their kind of journeys alive together? And then um, I liked um, like Les Blank's documentary. He's like oh, a documentary yeah. series that I love, and it, that was more my reference, you know, than like other multi-voice films, you know, because it just had to like. I don't know. Instead of many stories, almost like one story in a way being kind of handed off and everyone in a way is like not, in that same way with like warmth of the sense, they're actually in some ways not aware of how they're having these like similar internal like, you know, conversations with themselves, you know, so. In my sense, I mean, it works so well for Mudbound, mm -hmm. but my sense is, is that this is also an aspect of you as a storyteller. It, it was, let, it, obviously it works for Mudbound, but mm -hmm. this is also something that's an interesting, because Recently, there was a project announced was that the ERA one on Civil War, on Civil War, and on Civil War, yeah. yeah. And you have this quote, just you know, the press release quote about mm -hmm. the project. Yeah, yeah. And I'm listening to you talk about it, and it's this thing where it's like, I guess the history of the ERA is kind of a messy thing, and the women's movement it is like, messy. yeah. And there's like, and you're talking about the bargains that are made, and the kind of way that people are interacting, and this idea that like, that sense of you to understand that you kind of need to figure out all these pieces and these players. Yeah, yeah, no, I think I always like lean toward brokenness. Like I'm more interested in like brokenness, you know, and versus like, you know, like hagiography or how something is whole or perfect. Like I'm, I'm interested in like the cracks. And to me, mm -hmm. if you understand the cracks, then you can maybe better understand like the thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think like that's the thing I always go for, like the thing that's more subversive, the thing that's like, you know, not the straight ahead narrative. Like I never want to be like vanilla or straight ahead. Mm -hmm. And like with this film, you know, the risk is that in trying to make it everyone's story, the risk is it becomes no one's story and it's just like beautiful mush, you know? Mm -hmm. So I really want it to be like, you know, it's gonna be risky, but it's gonna be like, you know, it's gonna be daring. So like in the edit, so Maka Kometsuna, who edited Pariah, also did this, and it's like, you know, we start heavily with the McCallans with the risk being that, okay, you, you're, it's like a total like shift when we go to the Jacksons, but you know, in our idea that was you, that. And I apologize, so I just wondered, you cut that family story almost as if 
so it works like linearly. Well, like both of them, yes. We yeah. cut the McCallum, so like in the edit, we cut the Jackson family as if it had to stand as its own movie. And we, then we cut the McCallum family as if it had to stand as its own movie. And we let their natural intersection points fall, mm -hmm. kind of like, like where they did. And the burial is great. So it was always scripted, Henry and Jamie burying this body. But in the edit, you know, after that, we could go in, in any direction. And in deciding to go with Laura first, that was a choice because Laura takes us to Henry, Henry takes us to the land, the land takes us to Hap. And so just figuring out those like handoffs, you know, so in a way that's like thematic. Yeah. And that helps you, even though I'm sure that you have a very set mm -hmm. structure, that handoff, those transitions are something that you're really kind of, you have this unique editing approach to how to find first. Yes, yeah, kind of what makes sense thematically. So mm -hmm. for example, like with, um, with like, you know, like I feel like the ed is like a rewriting of it. And it's mm -hmm. like what makes sense thematic. Like it's not scripted that the war scenes are cut with like the the, the, the tragedy scenes at mm -hmm. home. But, you know, we rewrote it because like that's what keeps everything kind of moving. And like, you know, the scene where Jamie's with the prostitute, that was originally scripted for the end of the movie where he's in L.A. And it's like he's still haunted. Mm -hmm. But it made more sense as like this kind of triptych in the middle because it's like it completes this idea about sexual unfulfillment or, 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 or love. So it's kind of like... Henry rejects Laura, so we get sexual rejection. Jamie in the house, and like the war is over. It's kind of like, you know, this kind of sexual emptiness, you know, and then Ronzel and Riesel, true love. So you feel the Ronzel and Riesel, true love moment because we just saw these two other couples like not successful in it or not finding it. And so, and then it links Jamie and Ronzel, and like neither of these guys want to go back home, you know, it becomes a more interesting kind of moment. And so for me, it's just about like finding the handoffs and like you know you start out we think this is a story about two brothers what's their tension cut to laura okay so yeah. laura is a source somehow of this trouble mm -hmm. but we don't know what and like laura unfolds this relationship with like henry and then like why is laura so tense at the grave you know so it's kind of like starting the story out with questions you know allowing the audience to kind of be intelligent and mm -hmm. like you know kind of like lean into the story I think is a way to begin like starting with like spectacle and then like you know just questions and then we slowly kind of come to understand like how we came to be there so by the end we understand this is why these people are so like miserable and it's like this mm -hmm. misdirect like we think is a voice from beyond the grave mm -hmm. but you know it's not the guys alive so just like those um, I just really am interested in like the not straight ahead story and if there is a story how can you make it crooked how can you you mm -hmm. know come at it from an unexpected angle the other element um, you were talking about novels and, and, and mm -hmm. your film taking the structure. It, it also strikes me that one of the things for you as a filmmaker and kind of like where you really fit in in terms of the kind of juice as a filmmaker is, you know, one of the reasons novels are hard to adapt is that structure, but then there's also the internal monologue. Mm -hmm. And it seems like something that's not a challenge for you. That's what you love is that yeah. ability to... I'm thinking specifically about Florence, the Mary J. Blige character, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. it's... It's so pure of what cinema can do, which is if you set it up right, we can see characters think and feel with very little. Not that her mm -hmm. performance is little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, like, Sarah, like, yeah, Florence had to be a character where she sees 110%, but, like, says, like, 5% of what she sees, you know, and only, like, 1% of that will she say to Laura, you know. She gives it to her, like, family. And so, yeah, I think that, and so I wrote, like, original, like, monologue for Happened to Florence, like, that whole monologue where she says, I remember my mother blue. You know, I wrote that to set up this, cog she's not just going to take care of these kids, but there's a big cognitive dissonance about caring for these kids because she said she would never do it. It, you know, and that she's realizing she's doing it mm -hmm. to protect her own children. You know, like if Laura's kids die, like her family is in danger. So yeah, she needs Laura's so kids to live. It's like, so powerful yeah, when they, when they get like, sick. 
yeah, it's like this love has to be like a tool, like, like for, for survival. And like, same thing with HAP, like the whole meditation on deeds. Like I wrote that because we needed to understand HAP's connection to the land. We needed to, con to contextualize him. He didn't just come with the house. Like he has his own ambitions. He has his own connection to the land. And even like the half-built church, you know, in the book, he's working like on a mule shed when he falls. But I thought it was more interesting that he's working on a church and then it's this half-built faith, like throughout the thing. It's like this incomplete thing. So it's more ironic that he falls, mm -hmm. you know, in the service of this like, you know, hollow faith where you can see the, uh, the inside out and the outside in. So like changes like that I'm making, like all of HAP's sermons, you know, about home and having a place, you know, like I wrote all those just because every little thing is kind of like serving the theme. And mm -hmm. then, you know, in the end, you know, originally I'd written like a sermon for him, like in the end, but just, you know, in the ed is like, it's better like speechless. It's better if he has nothing to say, you know, like mm -hmm. everyone's looking for him, needing him to say, everyone knows what's happened, but HAP has no comfort for him, you know, so. Can we, re I just want to return to the Florence character just real quick. Mm -hmm. um, because it, it was so powerful for to me, and I, I think I really latched mm -hmm. on to her at mm -hmm. the end mm -hmm. uh, in her kind of quiet observation, mm -hmm. but yet searing with all mm -hmm. this emotion underneath. Mm -hmm. uh, Mary's great in it. Mm -hmm. I, I'm curious, in maybe to speak to a larger approach of your casting, mm -hmm. I'm not surprised that she continues to be a good actress, but mm -hmm. like I don't know that I would have thought of her in mm -hmm. this kind of quiet role mm -hmm. um, in, in that in that 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 would play upon her natural abilities. I, I'm wondering in terms of like putting this tapestry of characters together, is there an element in terms of like thinking how Mary fits in this where you're like casting the family? It's like this element of a, a, how does this family work together or is it really, are you thinking, you know, Garrett's perfect for this character and-, and No, and no, I, like I print out faces, like the faces have to work together. Like they have to look like they don't eat more than 600 calories a day. Like they have, the faces have to work together. And then we, with the kids, like the phenotypes, like they have to work, they have to look, they, like they produce these children. Like I hate movies where the kids look nothing like the parents. You know, so, mm -hmm. you know, you're reaching for it. So no, they had to felt like they work together and like you believe them and like, you know, Mary has this like, you know, she's able to affect this like reserved exterior, but have this kind of very empathetic, alive interior, like her eyes, like always are thinking, you can always see the wheels turning. Like there's not this like flatness, like she has like, it's this duality, like she can do the affectation, but then underneath she can have like the real thing. And like with Rob Morgan, I worked with him like on, on Pariah, he's a guy in the liquor store. And I've been trying to work with him like ever since because I know he's got chops and just like the timbre of his voice. Like people should consider voice when casting. It's not just, everyone can't sound the same way. So the, the gravelly, deep timbre of his voice, it sounds like, you know, the ground. It sounds like a furrow, you know, mm -hmm. like you needed that. And with, um, with um, Jason so nicely, Clark. So plays so nicely off Jason Clark. I was just about to yeah. say that. Because Jason it's like, Clark, yeah. It, mm -hmm. It's like yeah. almost different instruments, like mm -hmm. complete and embodied in, in, in their character is also that difference in that timbre. Yeah, the, yeah, and when he talks and Henry's but more, you know, through his nose and like the, the land, you know, it's like they have different voice. Like so, it's because, because of the film with so many voiceover, mm -hmm. like the voices had to be different and interesting and flow. And I mean, like Garrett's more kind of laconic pace, and yeah. like you know, it's like syrupy. So I just think in terms of like voice and faces and like how it's all going to work together. And like same thing, like with Laura and like even like the kids, like I cast those kids. Like you know, some people live that kind of casting to someone else, but it's like no, these like one looks like Henry, one looks like Laura. Like they they've got to like all kind of fit and flow. And then Jonathan makes us Pappy. Like, I needed someone, I needed Pappy to not just be the crazy old bigot in the corner. Like, he had to, like, be a grandfather, too. And he had to, like, you know, he's just a dad who wants his sons to love him, you know, in a way. And so, you know, the whole thing, there's, it's all shaded. Like, it's not black or white. It's, like, great. It's, like, whiteness is currency. Every last one of the McCallans have it. They just spend it differently. 
and we kind of watch how that affects, you know, how they affect each other with that and like how they affect the Jacksons and how the Jacksons are like, you know, within themselves, like trying to like, trying to contain their lives and how their lives are interrupted and showing like, you know, racism is a force that's like interruptive, you know, so it mm. means that, you know, you have to get up from your dinner table. It means you have to stop reading your letter. It means you have to stop doing whatever you're doing to then perform for someone else, you know? So just like the idea of that and how like the moment before he walks up, they're like grumbling and then he walks up and then, you know, they've got to perform or affect like, you know, um, affect kind of like acceptance and like with Henry, like the stuff he did with the sound design. So he's always preceded by the sound of like something mechanical. There's like an engine, there's like a tractor. He's the sound of progress. He's the sound of err, you know? So this kind of tense feeling, tense sound always precedes him, you know? And so, you know, it's like to think that way and doing the work. So like subconsciously as an audience member, you're reacting to things that you don't know that you're reacting to. Yeah, it's funny, I think something like this, um, in listening to you, I think something like for, uh, I know you did Bessie, but in terms of um, thinking about this as a second feature, we can even think of it as a third. The scale of something like this, I would imagine would be intimidating, but I'm listening to you talk and it's really this symphony of how they all fit together in, in that element. And we were talking about all the, it kind of listening to you talk about the structure and why you wouldn't want to cut it. That must be a guide for you in that sense of that for you is that that element of even thinking about it in terms of music and different instruments and pulling together yeah rather than I think some filmmakers are saying they're going okay I gotta deal with this and it's like the problems start like <laughs> yeah it becomes overwhelming it's so no yeah it starts at the beat level yeah. and so like you read the scene like you make you kind of draw it out like where are the turns like where are the moments where the scene changes or becomes about something else or when someone realizes something or an relationship has changed forever so, so if you get those turns in the scene right then the scene works and if you get the scene right then the sequence works and if you get the sequences right then the, that act works you know and then if that act works then you can get the whole thing so I like to really start at the beat level and like just never leave a scene unless you've gotten all the beats you know because it gives you all the ways to turn it you know and even even like in the performances if you ask for the same thing three times in a row you got no way to, to turn it but if you get something different even if it's perfect get something different so then you can turn the scenes at different points and bend it and just make it more interesting and make it you know it, there has to be a value change you know you can't leave a scene the same way you felt going into it so there's mm. a positive negative va value shift if all those value shifts are happening then you kind of have this like mountain range you know it's not this it's just you know for you um location and um, landscape, I mean, mm -hmm. and also the, the, the production design of the houses is obviously so huge to this. But there's like a different component I have to imagine with this film, which I think is unusual, f um, is, that, is that a huge part of that, and I think it's almost like production design, is what you do to the landscape. Like you have to like make it muddy. You have to like that. Create it. Yeah, yeah. So David Bomb was our production designer, and he convinced me to shoot in this one location. I was advocating for like this other like location, which is which is actually more like a cattle pasture because it had like this kind of like you know, like bumpy tough topography. So when he comes, he convinced me to shoot this place like a sugar plantation, and so we bought out you know this farmer's crop and like flooded his fields. We got our water trucks. It. Yeah, and we furrowed it. Yeah. yeah. And no, we thought very thoughtfully about it. And so the sharecropper, they were, we shot in actual sharecropper's cabins. And so designers were able to just like move those deeper into the field. And it was like a lot of conversation about like how the furrows should run. It was like the furrows like out Florence's back door have to run vertically out her back door. So she opens a door and like there's going to be this kind of like, it's like commerce, you know, mm -hmm. and like 
because I knew I wanted this shot of her like walking out and Hap can see them. He had to have this like line of sight mm-hmm. out the back door and into the field. So, you know, all that stuff is like planned, like how to do the furrows, you know, furrow them like in certain directions. And I you think of it as pretty, you think of it, I apologize to interrupt, but mm-hmm. I have to think, like, mm-hmm. what, that kind of answers my question. You think mm-hmm. about it in production design. Your production designer is the person that's doing this in that, yeah. in that sense of what we're going to do to this location, right? It's yeah. just, it's just yeah, a, yeah. It has, it, there's a technical aspect to it that might not be, be evident. Like paint and curtains. Like yeah, yeah, no, no, all those are like decisions. And yeah, like, yeah. you know, we wanted to site it further in because we needed these 360 vistas, you know, we right. wanted to be able to look in all directions. And like, my grandmother had written like this journal where she like inventoried things that would be in a cabin. She had done like floor plans of like cabins. So my grandmother did this and she like grew up on one of these cabins. So it was great to have this list of like, here's what the interior cabin would have. Here's the furniture we had. Here's, you mm-hmm. know, so we were able to like use that stuff in the design. So it's informed by, you know, experience, and, like informed by you know, someone who like lived it in a way. And so all those little, like little details, like I remember like there was a moment where I think the set, de- the set deck had like these plates in the Jackson family. I was like, they've ne- they wouldn't have plates, like where are the pie tins, you know? Mm-hmm. So get, get the plates out here and bring in like, like the pie tins. So even with that, you know, you have to have your eye on everything as a director to like just be aware of what's happening. And like, you know, it just feels false. And it's like this accumulation of things that, you know, a small detail here, a small detail there, the cumulative effect is you're not believing something, you don't know why, but it's like the pie, it's like a plate instead of a pie tin. It's like these little small accumulations, even like the palette. So in the McAllen's idea was that even though they have more, it's like less cozy in there. So the palette is cooler, it's pastels, mm-hmm. even though they have paint, you know, it just feels like less comfortable. Whereas the Jackson's is tone on tone. It's like natural wood, raw wood, you know, so it's like brown on brown on brown. So it just feels cozier and you warmer. Yeah. Even like the light sources are like, you know, you know, more like kind of like, sophisticated because they have been dealing with it, they've been coping with this and so where the McCallums are like new to this like way of life and they're figuring it out so. I was incredibly impressed by Rachel Morrison's in, in work mm-hmm. in this film and I'm wondering if kind of go back to the beginning of your collaboration where Ra- Rachel's the uh, cinematographer. Um, this, is, this movie's got period and it obviously wants to be good looking and it is mm-hmm. but then there's also an element of it doesn't want to be it wants to be a little bit gritty, real. It doesn't want that hue of exactly. Yeah, we didn't want to like romanticize the period. Like this is a time that gets ro- romanticized. We want to get behind the myth of the greatest generation and see like what that was really like. And yeah. yet, when you do landscape and you do something that's so based on light, it naturally has. It's going to have a beauty to it. It's going to mm-hmm. have a little bit of a glow to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious in terms of like how you guys threaded that needle. Because we, we, theoretically what we just said sounds mm-hmm. good, but mm-hmm. that's a really hard needle to thread based on like landscape, natural light, period, Yeah, and no, and so Rachel came to with a bunch of reference photos. She, you know, she was referencing this old WPA photography to where it has this candor, you know, and like my reference is like less blank and other WPA photography. So it had, it had this candor like Robert Frank, like I liked. So there's this mm-hmm. kind of like, in the faces and like the, the stagings, there's this, this kind of like, it's kind of almost before people really understood like what the camera could do, so the subjects were giving you this kind of like openness. And in terms of like, you know, the the look of it, so Rachel, like we looked at film and you know, we looked at, you know, 16 and by the time you blew up 16, it was like too soft in a way. And so then she was able to get this old glass and so she knew if you get the glass, you know, so we got these old Panavision, I think C-series lenses mm-hmm. to where it takes away some of the definition and makes the digital look more interesting. We added some grain. So it was just about like making it feel a little washed out, a little worn and like, you know, it was able to like have this kind of like, um, it, it, it wasn't so clean even though we're shooting like digitally and even though, you know, we have like this magic hour and these like never ending like sunsets. But it was just kind of about, about like how do you make it like, 
I don't know, just kind of real for the characters. And even though if we're on sticks, it's like breathing a little bit and like, you know, in the moments where we're um, handheld, it's like, you know, with meaning. So like in the bar, Jamie and Ronzel, it's like handheld French overs. So where it's like, you know, it's moving, but it's not like handheld for handheld sake, where we're moving mm -hmm. around. It's not like smooth for smooth sake. It's all, it has this kind of like um, indifference of nature in terms of like the feel of it, you mm -hmm. know? And so using like sliders, we go, like one of my favorite shots is like going, you know, cross haps like silhouette and out the door, like when it's like raining again, and then mm -hmm. back through the screen, you know, on like Florence's face and like not, adjusting perfectly for the inside versus like 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 the outside like mm -hmm. you know like bridge had to cut holes in the ceiling to like get the light into the cabin because there's very few you know there's such small spaces there are not ways to like are those actual locations the cabins those are, those are those are just structures everything's on location those okay. are actual sharecropper cabins okay. yeah um there's no stage work on this film i just want to make sure uh, you know we'll just circle back real quick um we talked about uh um on Civil War, it sounds like you're casting for that one, and that's then mm -hmm. that's your movie. So forward. there's another big ensemble piece, which yeah. will be great, yeah. And that's your mm -hmm. And then there's a couple other things. Um, you know, it's funny we, we were talking about in the office that um, you're going to adapt a, a Joan, Joan Didion, Didion. Yeah, which yeah. seems like it, everybody loves Joan Didion, but and her movie's actually playing tonight. Yeah, they're yeah. not her movie. The documentary, movie. yeah. But um, that seems like it, it, one of those things where uh, that doesn't seem like something that would be easy to adapt. But I'm almost assuming. That this comes back to the idea that uh, that challenge of the internal everything's internal, yeah, that, that's exciting that, thing. Like that's that's exactly that's, that's the juice for you. Exactly. That, yeah. 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 No, did like Dina's a master, and it's like I love like she has this like almost clinical way. You know, she can be like a clinician, like the way she talks about place, the way she talks about like California. Like she's she can be this like is this interesting affect. It's like this, this this there's a coolness to her writing like that I love. Like it's this almost like dispassionate at times, but it's just like you know. Almost, almost like observer kind of point of view like that I love and so I kind of like that coldness and I like her characters and like all their kind of churn and like to me that's the thing like the inner the inner churn is like what's most exciting you know like in Bessie I wanted to explore like loneliness you know how like thousands can love you on stage hundreds can love you backstage when mm -hmm. you go home it's just you you know mm -hmm. so just I'm always interested in that kind of inner thing you know versus like the obvious kind of like plot and narrative and for me last thing is interesting because it's an exploration of like this is what happens when you listen to your father blindly you know yeah. like you die so um yeah, yeah. but so so th that that challenge of of adapting that is coming that's that's, that's yeah that's, that's, yeah that's, and so i've got a writer because i'm trying to like empower other writers and so i have a writer doing okay. it for me and so hopefully you know so it's marco via lobos and so you know hmm. it's on him to bring it in and hopefully i won't have to mess with it so yeah i, I don't mean to um Simplify something, but it seems like you want to make uh, the D Reese get out. Is that, is that, is that <laughs> that's how it's being described in the trades? I don't know, but like, is it wouldn't that, be. It, it was like it's like it's like with Jason Bloom. So I wanted to tell like a horror story that's kind of interesting. Jason, Jason, so characters. Just, Jason, Jason, Jason is um, Blumhouse who um, pr produced Get, get out, out and a whole, a whole bunch of other movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want it to be its own thing, but you know, it's going to be similar in that it's like you know, in terms of like who's at the center of it. You know, is there like an isolating circumstance? You know, mm -hmm. and it's like you know exploring isolation and exploring, you know, I think threats and like, where they come from. Do they come from within or do they, do they come from without? So I'm excited to explore that. And, like, Genre's have, always the best way. I don't like, know. Like, idea. Yeah, I think you can actually say more, you know, like you can say more in sci-fi than you can say in straight ahead drama. You can say more in horror in a way because people are already kind of like thinking more expansively about them. They're already suspending their disbelief in like a different way mm -hmm. and opening themselves like to like the material. But hopefully this will be actually like realistic and scary. And, like, scary as fuck is the only like mandate, you know. Like, that, that's what we're gonna try to work on. And so you see those stuff from the '50s dealing with like McCarthyism and the Red Scare and all the kind of serious drama ones just don't wear well. But like 
the horror stuff is yeah. so last. is so per, I mean it's so relevant still politically and things yeah. like that. Yeah, to me it's funny it's like the supernatural. It's like the for me the scariest movie of all time is like The Exorcist. It's mm-hmm. the movie that still to this day, you know, mm-hmm. I can't watch alone, which is odd because like supernatural, but it's about like belief in a way. And mm-hmm. like if you believe, yeah, then things can come inside you. You know what I mean? So, it's, I don't know. I think There's another one that you're going to need to be written, right? Yeah, yeah. So my partner and I are going to write that one together. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, D. Reese, Mudbound. It's a fantastic film. And uh, thanks thanks for uh, spending some time. All right, cool.